Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this church and for the gift of those gathered here today to study your holy word. We pray that you would speak to us today, and we pray even more that we would listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we dive into Genesis chapter 2, and uh, something to note right off the bat, that what we're going to find in Genesis chapter 2 is an alternative creation narrative, not one meant to compete with Genesis chapter 1, but rather one that complements it. But it is not a continuation of what we studied last week. It was written at a different time, perhaps by a different group of people. And whenever scripture was redacted or put together in its final form, it all kind of harmoniously was put together and ordered in this particular way. And so whenever we study Romans, for instance, you know, Paul sat down or actually had a scribe he was with And he dictated that letter from beginning to end. And so Genesis works a little bit differently. Not that it's all written in a disjointed way, but certainly these are two different creation narratives. And so the first four verses of chapter two are a continuation of what we studied last week. And then in verse five, we're going to pick up with a different story. So I just want you to pay attention to that break in the text and the different emphasis of this week's text relative to last week. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth When no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So we're going to break there and talk about the first 15 verses before moving on to verses 18 and on. First thing I just want to name, the first four verses are the conclusion of last week's creation narrative, where God creates the world in six days with the Adam, uh, male and female, the human beings created on the sixth day, and the image and likeness of God being declared to be very good, 
and God rests on the seventh day and blesses the seventh day, thus establishing the Sabbath. And so this ends a very coherent narrative that uh, we started last week. And then whenever we pick up with the words, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, it's like hearing a different account of creation. Again, not a competing account, but one that is meant to complement the one that we read last week and one that has some different matters of emphasis. And so notice verse five, we start with no plant of the field yet springing up on the earth, but we don't actually know where this earth comes from. It's assumed that God created the earth, and certainly the people who put together scripture in its final form were deeply aware of the story of Genesis 1 and ordered it prior to Genesis 2, but this is a different account, right? So the earth is there. It's not the chaos that needs to be ordered that we started with last week. It is an earth, but we don't actually have any flowers and vegetation springing up. So it still needs to be cultivated, right? And part of the creation of the Adam, Adam, is to cultivate, to till and keep this area. And so Rain has not yet fallen upon the earth, but there is a stream that waters the earth. And after this earth is there, God forms man from the dust. The Hebrew word for dust is Adama. And so in Hebrew, it's a pun. The Adam comes from the Adama. And so it's meant, again, just to be a play on words in Hebrew to remind us that the living man does come from the earth. We rehearse this on Ash Wednesday. Remember you are dust, to dust you shall return. It is meant to ground us in humility and to tie us to the earth and to our larger vocation to steward that earth. Because part of what Adam is created to do, we find out, is to till and keep the garden. That's verse 15. The Hebrew word translated till is abad. And, and part of what that word means is to serve. And so last week, we had the idea of Adam and Eve given dominion. And we said how dominion is not the same as domination, that the true meaning of dominion is to rule and to rule as one made in the image of God, who is the ultimate ruler. And we know that God as ruler is a servant. That's what it means for Jesus to be the son of God and to reveal himself as a servant. So dominion is about serving, but it's a different word. And this week we get the idea of tilling and keeping, which is about serving and cultivating and bringing out the potential of that which God has put in front of us. And so God is the creator, and we are the ones made in God's image who are called to cultivate that, to make it beautiful, and to tend to it. Now, in alternative creation myths, not within the Israelite religion, but the surrounding pagans, a lot of times their stories about why this earth was here were tied to violence, to the gods being at war. And in some narratives, human beings are created to basically do the work that the gods were too lazy to do, right? So the gods created this, this earth and it's a lot of work, but it's, you know, 
below them. And so they create human beings basically to do all the work they were too lazy to do. It's not a very flattering picture of A, work, or B, human beings, or C, God. But here, even though this story has some of those themes, notice it is one God. We have the Lord God. And um, this is a different word than we had last week. Last week, it was just God. The Hebrew is Elohim. This week, we have the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And so we can talk about the different names for God within uh, ancient Israelite religion, if you'd like. Suffice it to say, they did not believe in many gods, but one God. But various traditions refer to this God by various names. So this week, we're dealing with Yahweh Elohim and not just Elohim. And so Yahweh Elohim creates the man out of love, creates the garden out of love, and uh, allows this human being made in his image to till the garden, to multiply, to expand it as an extension of his love. Now, does it say that directly in the text? No, that's, that's clearly an interpretation. But I think it's one that is well grounded in our biblical text, uh, certainly when read through the eyes of the gospel, but even within Genesis 1 and 2 itself, where the human being is created in God's image. And so there is man put in the garden that God creates with a vocation, a vocation to take care of it. And I think that speaks to what it means to be a human being, that God invites us to tend to the many metaphorical gardens he places us in, to cultivate them, to make them beautiful. We're introduced in this pericope, this passage, to two trees. One is the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And both trees will play prominently and tragically in Genesis chapter 3. It's going to be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that ultimately trips Adam and Eve up, and it's going to be the tree of life that they are banned from whenever they leave Eden. I think it's also important to note as we read this as Christians that there's a lot of resonance and overlap with the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis. And so just think, for instance, how verse 1 of chapter 2 begins, the heavens and the earth were finished, right? Whenever we hear that word, it is finished, we think of Jesus on the cross, right? on a different tree of life in or nearby a different garden, right? The garden of Gethsemane. And in the gospel of John, in fact, when Mary Magdalene sees the risen Christ, she mistakes him for a gardener. And so there's a lot of intentional alluding to Genesis 1 and 2 in the gospel of John and of what it means for Jesus to finish the work of the new creation. But I don't want to jump too far ahead of ourselves. And so verse 15, the man is put in the Garden of Eden to till it. Uh, last week, I mentioned how the Hebrew word Adam, when used in Genesis chapter 1, is not necessarily a word that connotes gender or sex, that it could be gender neutral. Here, however, I do think we need to read this as a male. Otherwise, it's not going to make sense when the woman is created. So some of those tensions are going to be found in scripture, right? A word can mean one thing in one chapter and something else in a different chapter, either because the context is different or because the author of the passage was different and had some different ideas. And so here is the man placed in the garden, given a vocation to take care of it as God's image bearer. And basically he is given free reign over the whole garden. 
eat whatever you want, do whatever you want. There's just one thing you need to know. There's this tree and the name of the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And you can't eat from that tree for if you eat of that tree, you will die. And in fact, the English isn't strong enough. The Hebrew reads, for in the day that you eat of this fruit, you are doomed to die. And so it's very much a curse. If you eat this fruit, you are doomed to die. It is very strong. It is not a light warning. It is not a passing comment, but it's very clear from God. You are completely free, but this is where the fatal flaw is. Eat from this tree. You are doomed to die. And so we'll go ahead and pause there and see uh, what questions or comments y'all have about this first part of Genesis chapter two. All right. So we're going to pick up now with verses 18 and on. Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for God, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man, this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. They become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. So the first thing I want to point out is that even though the fall has not happened yet, that's next week we still have the first malediction in scripture. The word benediction means a good word. Bene is good, diction is word. So a benediction is a good word. A malediction is a bad word. It's the opposite of a blessing. And God looks at the man he has created, sees that this man is alone. And for the first time, God says, not good right? And this not good is meant to contrast with the many goods that have already been uttered in chapter one and the very good uttered when God created humankind in his image. But now we see that the man does not have a helper, does not have a partner, and this is not good. And what this means to me, theologically speaking, is that even though we all have a God-shaped hole that only God can fill, this means that we're also created with a human-shaped hole that God himself chooses not to fill. This is not just about marriage. It's not about romantic relationships. It's about being human. As Christians, we believe we are created in the image of a Trinitarian God, a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so for us to truly bear the divine image, we need some form of connection to other human beings. Now, that can take a variety of forms, and some people are called to a contemplative, aesthetic, solitary life, but they still have some form of connection with others. To be here at this Bible study is a way of connecting. It's a way of saying, it is not good for me to be completely alone. I need to gather with others to look at their faces, to hear their opinions, because God created me to connect. And that has nothing to do with 
sin and the fall. It has to do with how God wired us. And so God says, I'm going to make the man a helper. The word helper is a pretty bad translation, but then again, the Hebrew word is basically impossible to translate. The King James Version translates it as help meet, which is a really weird word. Try using that in your normal everyday speech. People will look at you funny. The Hebrew word also shows up sometimes in the Psalms and in military context with the Lord being the people's helper, rescuing them from the enemies. But the basic gist is that here is Adam created in God's image, and it's just that there's an incompleteness there. There's something, it's like the whole cake has been made, but there's no cherry on top, or the whole car has been built, but there's no engine. I mean, use whatever metaphor you like. It's almost there, but the benediction won't come until the human being has another image bearer with whom to relate, that there's a human-shaped hole in Adam that God chooses not to fill. And so in verse 19, we have God creating the animals. And last week, God created the animals in an orderly sequence on days one through six. Here we have it almost as like a comedic story of maybe the animals can be an appropriate partner for Adam. You know, that the ancient Hebrews did have a bit of a sense of humor. And so clearly this is not a theological statement as if God really thinks that a cow or a lizard or a cheetah can be an appropriate soul partner for Adam, but we do have the animals being created because, you know, maybe they can be Adam's partner. And of course, as we all know, you know, I love my golden retriever more than anyone loves their dog, but animals cannot be the sort of helper that God is describing here. But part of what gets articulated with the animals being paraded in front of Adam is that Adam gets to name the animals. And I would invite us to see this as a symbolic way of the Bible speaking of us being invited into God's creativity and God's authority. And so in the same way that God named the man, that God named the human being, and then gave this human being an assignment to till and keep the garden, gave this human being some dominion, basically said to this human being, you are invited to share in my rule. Uh, he invites the human being to name the animals, to share in God's own creativity. You know, someone on Sunday asked the question, wasn't Adam playing God? And the answer is no, because God invites Adam to name the animals. Adam will play God, but that's not going to happen until chapter three. Adam and Eve will play God when they insist on eating from the tree. But here, God is just inviting them to step deeper into their vocation and to share a bit in God's creative rule. And so Adam names all the animals, and that's how the animals are created. But Adam is still left without a partner. And so God causes a deep sleep to fall upon him. He takes one of Adam's ribs and makes a woman. And suffice it to say, if by now uh, you haven't realized that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 can't be read completely literally, the deepest meaning of this text is not that one of the sexes was made from the ribs of another sex. That's not the most intelligent way of reading this, but rather it points to the deepest truth that our humanity and our being and our livelihood is bound up with each other. Um, in South Africa, they have a great phrase, Ubuntu which means my humanity is bound up with yours. And that is something we often forget that actually, even though we feel like a very self-contained buffered self, that's not actually how it works. 
we are mystically and ontologically connected in ways that we can't really fathom. And baptism reminds us of this, right? Whenever you're baptized, you don't become a a super self-sufficient human. You're reminded that you are just a part in a larger body. So you have uniqueness, you are a part, but you also have the collective, you're part of a body, and there's only one body. And so this idea that Adam and Eve share one body also kind of foreshadows the reality of baptism, where we actually share one body. We are metaphorically made from the ribs of one another. So Adam sees this woman, he looks at her, and then he basically steals that line from the Etta James song, At Last. Uh, Actually, Etta James stole uh, her lyrics from Genesis 2. She probably should pay royalty to God, um, give, give God some of the proceeds of that, because her song is based on this poem we have in Genesis 2, 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man. This one was taken. This is Hebrew poetry. And so we don't really know when Genesis 2 was written. We do know that this poem about Adam's exaltation when he looks at the woman, that this is a very ancient text and would have come before this chapter was written. It would have been known. It would have been recited. We have a poem in Genesis chapter one, whenever it says, so God created humankind in his image, in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. And so we have these instances where these ancient Hebrew poems are woven into the text. And then in verse 24, we have that phrase about a man leaving his father and mother, clinging to his wife. This is one of those verses that Jesus will quote at one point. But then, of course, the real verse that leaves us hanging as we go into chapter three are how the man and woman are together how they are naked, and how they are not ashamed. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we have pictures of how God created us to live before the fall. You know, one of those pictures has to do with work. You're given dominion. You're given an assignment. You have a garden to till and to keep. That God did not create us to sit back and eat Cheetos and be comfortable and, you know, look at our iPhones all day. Um, That's what I do when I'm not working or chasing kids. And there's actually you know, there's an assignment that comes with being a human being. And that's what it means to be made in God's image. But the other piece has to do with human relationships and how it's not good to be alone and how other people need to be in our life and how those relationships are to have a certain quality to them. And that quality is captured in this phrase, naked, but not ashamed. To be very, very clear, I think everyone understands this. This is figurative metaphorical language. To be naked is to be ourself, it's to not hide, it is to be authentic, it's to be seen, it's not to manage your impression of me or to try and kind of manipulate you into thinking a certain way about me, it's it's about not disclosing this but hiding that. It's about being before each other as we are. And, you know, certainly our threshold for being completely authentic with each other, it's one of those things that you kind of grow into slowly. But in the church, it is something we need to grow into, that each time we have an interaction, the question is, how can this interaction be a little bit more authentic, a little bit less hiding from me than the last interaction we had? And so part of what it means for us as a church to be saved and to have God's spirit is to say, 
well, how do we stand before each other the way this man and this woman stood before each other before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? All right, I'm going to pause there and we will let your questions and observations kind of frame our final 20 minutes.